Hello and welcome back to Disability Discussion. My name is Abigail Bachman and I'm so excited that you are listening today because we have our very first interview. So today we're talking to Millie Ecker and a little bit about her is that she's an honors student at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania in the Special Education Undergraduate Program and the Literacy and Reading Specialist Masters of Education Program. She'd like to work with individuals with exceptionalities when she graduates and her long-term goal is to obtain a doctorate focusing on special education services in the youth correction system in urban areas. She's the Disability Support Service Senator in Undergraduate Student Government Association and the GED Instructor in Indiana County Correctional Facility. She is also diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, also known as EDS. All right, Millie, let's get right to it. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I'm a student at IUP or Indiana University of Pennsylvania. I'm in both an undergraduate and graduate program. Um, My undergraduate is in special education and my master's program is in literacy and it's looking to seek a reading specialist certification. My goal is that when I graduate, I'd like to work with individuals with severe exceptionality. So I'm looking at probably an MDS or an emotional support classroom. But my long-term goal is to ultimately obtain my doctorate, and I'd really like to focus on special education services, especially in urban areas and in the youth correction system. Oh, wow. That's awesome. That's super unique and something, especially the youth correction um, system, that's not something that we really think of a lot. Thank you. It's definitely... um, I think an aspect that people don't necessarily think of, especially when we want to look at breaking the incarceration cycle, Um, something I'd really like to study more on, even within my master's program, is looking at how literacy specifically has its impact on youth and their own incarceration cycle, and if there's a way to possibly look at, you know, if there's an adult person within their life, whether it's a parent, a sibling, um, extended family, that has an incarceration cycle as well, if we both use education literacy for, you know, both sets of individuals, is there a way to help break their incarceration cycles and then limit the possibility of future generations developing that cycle as well? So I currently work as a GED instructor in Indiana County Correctional Facility, and I work with a couple of different groups of individuals, some of which are learning English, some of which have um, behavioral needs and exceptionalities of their own. So it's definitely a learning environment, and my goal ultimately is to see how can we use education and literacy and understanding to help better our society and better our corrections program, because ultimately the point of rehabilitation, you know, a corrections thing is to rehabilitate, to cure, Mm -hmm. to save, to help. Yes. So, you know, if, if that's not working, then the problem is with the system. So my ultimate goal is to look back, look at the education, look at the literacy, but also look at the exceptionalities that are within that, because oftentimes a lack of education, especially in youth, is you know, what's going on behind there? Is there an emotional disturbance? Is there a learning disability? So it's examining Mm -hmm. all those small parts that build a big puzzle. Yes. 
Yes, for sure. That's awesome. Great work. And I'm excited to see, you know, you continue that journey and see where that takes you. For some of you who may not know, Millie and I actually go back a few years. (laughs) We went to Lockhaven University together and we met our freshman year. And then we both met again at IUP and we've had some classes together and everything. And I just love seeing the work that you've been doing on campus um, and then also in the community. So if we could talk a little bit about your story and about you, I know that you're diagnosed with a rare disease. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Of course. So um, I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome type 3, also known as hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, in June of 2019, so this past summer. Um, EDS, really quick, that's the acronym for you. EDS is a genetic connective tissue disorder that primarily affects joints, skin elasticity, and tissue fragility. There are 13 subtypes of EDS that have been discovered, and each one has its own impact on the body. Mm-hmm. But like I said, the common symptoms are frequent dislocation, subluxation, elastic skin, um, fragile thin skin. So you bruise, you cut easy, um, your joints dislocate and relocate. Um, your joints also even just standing have a more an arc or an angle. So a common sign is if you see somebody's knees buckle a little bit backwards more, or their elbows buckle forward more. Um, A common one is if they can touch their thumb to their wrist is a really common sign of uh, hypermobility. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. I don't know if anyone else listening just tried it, but I did, and I did not not get it. But have you been living with this for your whole life? So, yeah, Ehlers-Danlos is a genetic... um, Disease, I don't want to say disease because I feel like disease right now in our society has such a negative connotation. But Ehlers-Danlos is genetic. So if since I have it somewhere along in my family line, somebody else has to have it. And then for future generations in my family, there's a 50% chance of somebody developing it or being a carrier. So the thing with Ehlers-Danlos is it takes a long time for the symptoms to kind of start showing up and have an onset age. And then once symptoms begin to appear, it can take at least um, 10 years to get an accurate diagnosis because it can disguise itself as so many other illnesses or issues going on with the body. And what's really tricky is for my specific type of Ehlers-Danlos, there is no one test. With the other 12 subtypes, there is a genetic test that they can do to find the mutation and mark as saying, yes, you have this type of Ehlers-Danlos. But with um, hypermobile type 3 Ehlers-Danlos, there is no genetic marker. So it takes a little bit longer. We have to look at um, what's called the Baton score, which for anybody that wants to look it up, if you go to ehlersdanlos.com, they have a lot of information about the different subtypes and um, assessing joint hypermobility. And they have this bait and score test where they have you uh, lay your hand flat on a table and if you can pull your pinky back 90 degrees and touch it to your wrist you know that's a sign of hypermobility and you know your joints once again the thumb touching the wrist the um buckle of 90 degrees in certain joints um especially in your elbows it's a 10 degree buckle of like that extra um space within your joints so what's happening is the like the tissues and the ligaments that surround your joint are so loose and flexible that your joint kind of moves them to the side and then utilizes really all of that space within there, which really shouldn't be used. 
So that's why we have that extra buckle is so within your elbows, it's a 10 degree buckle and it's 90 for your joints if it's your pinky and your thumb. And it just, it changes for each one. Um, they, what they uh, do for this is they have you stand up and first things first is you stand up completely straight. They check for the knee buckle. If the knee buckle is there, you then bend over and you cannot bend your knees. If you can lay your hands flat on the floor with like out bending your knees or your elbows, they just lay flat on the floor. Either the tops of your hands or the palms touch the floor. That's another signal. And then they once again examine your hands. Um, that's what they do for all types, but especially hypermobility type because we don't have that easy genetic marker. So you said that it can take years to get an accurate diagnosis. When did you start seeing some of these things? And at what age did you finally get that diagnosis? It's definitely tricky for me because I was very athletic at a young age. I did dance. I enjoyed gym class at school. So we always attributed a lot of these symptoms like breaking bones, easy bruising, um, dislocations to just being active in sports. Mm -hmm. We've known from a young age that I was always really flexible. I could do the splits even without, you know, dance training at first. Um, I just always had that frequent flexibility, but we just kept attributing it to dance. And, you know, there's other symptoms that come along with EDS. Um, Sometimes you have certain food allergies or a heat sensitivity. There's a lot of comorbidities, which means there's like accompanying diagnoses that go along with EDS that you kind of have to build into different parts. So we first started seeing um, mostly a lot in high school was when we found out I started having some food allergy issues. I was breaking like fingers and my wrists and my toes a lot. Um, I would frequently dislocate my knees and my shoulders. And, you know, when I would go to a doctor, they couldn't see anything wrong at the moment. It wasn't like a tear that you would see in a normal body when, you know, something dislocates. Most people are not able to relocate it without help. And there's normally a lot of inflammation and, you know, you see damage within the body, but my body wasn't showing that. We couldn't understand why. And it was really frustrating because, you know, most people with Ehlers-Danlos being rare, they don't consider it. They're not thinking that that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, it was frustrating. And then as I was continuing on in college, I was still having a lot of issues with, you know, just the dislocations, the joint pain. It's it's very difficult because when you look at somebody with Ehlers-Danlos, you don't necessarily see the disease. You don't see the disability. You just see a person. But in all reality, it's it can be very painful to just function, to walk, to move your hands. Something as simple as writing or walking up the stairs can be, you know, really challenging for individuals that have it really severe. Some individuals with Ehlers-Danlos end up using mobility aids such as canes, um, the forearm crutches, wheelchairs. Uh, there's AFOS, which are special braces that fit like around the ankles and the calves to help bring a little bit more stability and support in those ankle joints. Mm-hmm. So there's a variety of aids that come into play for individuals with Ehlers-Danlos. Um, another common one is finger splints. Um, Oval 8 is a company for anybody that looks at wants to see what a finger splint might look like for somebody with Ehlers-Danlos since most people when they think of finger splint they think of oh broken finger the big metal wrap around mm-hmm. but these are a little different because we have to be able to move and do day to day tasks without our fingers dislocating but still needing that splint to limit the flexibility so mm-hmm. you know a resource for people to look at but it wasn't until I would really say it was last year it was in March 
and I just started feeling really sick. I was having a lot of chest pain. The joint pain was really difficult. My limbs, my feet, and my hands especially would turn purple and green and red, and it was very painful, and I couldn't understand why. So for spring break, my um, mom ended up taking me to the doctor, and I was in the, like in and out of the hospital for tests and seeing, you know, cardiologists and my PCP to see what was going on. And at first, we started looking at the comorbidities, mm-hmm. and with those comorbidities adding up, we're like, I wonder if this is EDS. So I finished the semester out, and I was sent to a rheumatologist who specializes in Ehlers Danlos, where he, you know, had me perform the bait and score. He checked out my joints and saw, you know, the flexibility within even joints that people don't consider, like ribs, hips, collarbones, shoulder blades, all of which on a person with Ehlers-Danlos can still dislocate and pop, which all of mine do. So it became very clear to him that I had type 3 of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So once I got that diagnosis in June, it really changed how I had to look at things and what I was doing. You know, I really loved to teach Zumba and dance. And, you know, a lot of that was very hard on my joints. And so he's like, you know, sports like that maybe wouldn't be so good for you. You know, that's really hard on your body. Things like sitting, I have to be really careful with basic things like crossing my legs, um, sitting crisscross, that can dislocate my joints. And so I have to be really aware of how I sit. Um, something silly like raising your hand when you get excited in class to answer a question mm-hmm. and you raise your hand and you get really excited. Sometimes if I do that a little too enthusiastically, you know, my elbow or my shoulder will go and it'll, you'll hear that loud click of the ligaments sliding over the bone to have that, that dislocate. And not only is it awkward for me, but it's embarrassing, you know, because it interrupts the class and I feel like it brings a negative attention. And sometimes it is painful depending on what dislocates like when I laugh I have to be careful not to laugh too hard because you know my ribs sometimes will click or things like that so it's that balance of how do you move your body so you can still live a normal healthy happy life but still be within the confine of what your body's I'm not sure how to phrase this but you you know what I'm getting at like yes yes yeah, so I ended up going to PT. I was going three times a week um, up until the beginning of the semester at IUP. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, PT was very helpful. She taught me how to kind of slide my joints back in in a little bit more gentle way that was um, kind of nicer on the tissues and the ligaments and the cartilage around them, um, how to kind of move the bones. Because sometimes, especially in your bottom part of your legs from the knees down, your bones can kind of shift around from all the flexibility and movement of the muscle, the ligaments, and the tissue. So kind of how to guide them back gently and um, different stretches and strength exercises I can do because people with Ehlers-Danlos, it's really difficult for us to just walk into a gym and pick up a set of weights because Mm -hmm. we dislocate so easy. We have to build up over time. You know, first we start off with those resistance elastic bands and oftentimes it takes us a long time to just go with those. Like I know for me, I'm still on the uh, elastic resistance bands because it'll dislocate my arm, like either my elbow or my shoulder if I get too heavy of a weight going. So we have to be really cognizant of how we're moving our body and what we're using to strengthen our joints. Okay. So so going back a little bit, had before you got the diagnosis, have you ever heard of EDS before? So I had first heard of EDS, I think really just by chance. Um, oftentimes we read in 
you know, newspapers or social media, oh, this celebrity has this diagnosis. Well, I had read an article that Sia, who's a musician for listeners that may not know, has Ehlers-Danlos. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then for anybody that's um, into different queer culture and that kind of um, events that go on, Evie Oddly, who was on RuPaul's Drag Race, has um, Ehlers-Danlos as well. And she actually talked about it when she was on the show and she showed about how some of the subluxations and dislocations occur, but we just have to keep rolling and going with our lives. So I hadn't heard a lot about it, but I had heard it between, you know, um, Evie Oddly and Sia, the musician about it. So that was, the name had appeared in my head, but it didn't have a meaning yet, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. What did you think when you heard them say, this is exactly what you have? Did you, think about how this was going to change the way that you lived your everyday life? It's, it's, um, it's definitely a mix of emotions. Um, I know my parents were definitely happy at the fact that we found the source. Mm -hmm. I know that they felt sorrow at the fact that I was in pain and I'd gone through that, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm very close with my family. So the goal was what can we do as a family unit to get better, to increase awareness in the community, to help you know, make, not make this a negative situation. Mm -hmm. And what comes with any major diagnosis, whether it be a rare disease like Ehlers-Danlos or something like cancer, or even oftentimes, you know, parents of a child with autism or Down syndrome say this is, it's a feeling of grief Mm -hmm. because the life that you thought of or dreamt of, or that you even had for the past few years before the diagnosis is different. And it's gone and you have to adjust and it's a bit of a grieving period you know for me I would get upset at the fact that I couldn't dance anymore or couldn't teach Zumba and I was frustrated because I loved those things and you know they just weren't healthy for my body and it was an adjustment period and sometimes you still do feel those frustrations or especially if you feel your disability or your diagnosis kicking back on you I mean because with Ehlers-Danlos and any other you know disease or condition there are days where you're fine and you're able to cope with your symptoms really well and there are other times where it's a a struggle just to move forward and those struggle days are when you really feel that grieving period because you're like why is my body like this why can I not do what my peers around me are doing why why am I feeling this way and so it's I think the most important thing though is to realize that it doesn't have to define you as a person. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have this condition, and yes, you have to kind of build around it, but it doesn't have to be this negative cloud over you. It doesn't have to be this chip on your shoulder, this this boulder to carry. It can be, you know, a platform to bring advocacy and awareness about it and bring education to others because eventually if we have enough research about it, students and other people across the world will know what it is and how to help those around them and hopefully it'll lead to research and hopefully medications and cures to help cope with these diagnoses especially with Ehlers-Danlos there is no cure right now what they do is they you know offer medication and physical therapy and even something as drastic as surgery but it's really only to cope with the symptoms Mm -hmm. so you know the struggle with rare diseases is because we are such a small community of individuals, big companies don't see an economic benefit Mm 
to putting the research, the time, the money, the people towards finding ways to do more than just cope with these symptoms. There's not enough benefit for what they pull out. So then it's frustrating for those that have it because we need help and we need the research, but there's not an economic benefit to do so. So that's especially where education and advocacy can come into play because if more people are aware, there has to be a way. There's always a way. And it can be with any diagnosis. I mean, even look at cancer, right? We have to continue looking at cancer research to see how can we do more than just cope with these symptoms. Yes, yes. And you've done an amazing job of advocating for not only EDS, but rare diseases. Can you tell us a little bit about all the work that you've done? Sure. So for listeners that don't know me, I am the Disability Support Services Senator in our Undergraduate Student Government Association at IUP. So what I do is I help advocate for those that receive services through our disability offices um, that receive on campus. And I also want to work on educating the community around us on all disabilities, on all exceptionalities, including basic things like person-first language or accidental ableism. So what I did this past February, um, every year in February, it is Rare Disease Week for that last week. And this year being a leap year, it was, a, it was really special because we had the 29th. You know, it's considered rare. So we were able to really build on that. So what we did was we had a week long of events that talked about advocacy and educating our campus. Um, IUP has, considering rare diseases, has a larger amount of individuals with rare diseases or even invisible disabilities, such as postural orthostatic tachycardia, a.k.a. POTS, has a huge population on IUP's campus. So what we did was we made this big poster, and it's available on um, the SGA Instagram for individuals to see if they'd like to see it. But um, where we had individuals on the campus, whether they were staff, administration, students, even just community members, um, come in and they got to put their handprint on the poster. We put it in some paint, and when they were putting their handprint on the poster, we got a chance to interact and talk about rare diseases on campus. And it was really amazing to meet some of the students and talk with some of the students who had rare diseases. I think a special moment for me for that specific day was there was a family who was on tour. And the father pulled the tour over, and he asked me, you know, what's going on? And I explained how, you know, we were bringing education and advocacy and awareness for Rare Disease Week. And, you know, he kind of teared up, and he looked at me and said, do you know that I have a rare disease? And he opened up and shared that with me. And mm-hmm. to make that connection with somebody that I'd never met mm-hmm. really made such a beautiful impact on me to realize that we really are all a community and he ended up putting his handprint on the poster, and I found out later that that girl committed to IUP, oh, and it just meant the awesome. world to me that that family got to see that representation mm-hmm. that oftentimes people with disabilities don't see. I mean, there's so many ways to just look at disabilities and the rare disease connection, um, especially on IUP's campus, because like I said, there was there is that large community and to have that connection of students coming up to you and be like, I have this rare disease too and I've, I've been afraid to talk about it or I have this disability and I've been afraid to talk about it, but I get to see your advocacy and I'm starting to see the campus understand and mm-hmm. want to learn and want to change for the better and it makes them feel more confident in who they are and accepting of themselves because we really do need to see that representation and 
you know, to talk about that line of confidentiality, but also needing to bring awareness and education, you know, sometimes it takes one or two people to be vocal and say, I have this disease, I have this disability, and it doesn't have to define us negatively. And for the people around us that are able-bodied, you know, we need to help them realize, yes, this is the world that we live in, these are our struggles, and here's how you can help us. But here's also who I am as a person. Don't focus on my diagnosis. Don't focus on my disability. Focus on me and what I can contribute to this world, to this program, to this community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's just really stellar to have at least one or two people be that voice and speak out because it can start that chain reaction, just like your podcast, you know? It may start off small, and you might talk about smaller topics, but eventually all it takes is one person to, you know, flip that domino. And all of a sudden, we're starting to get more education, more awareness, and we can spread the word and make our communities more accessible because all in all, that's really the goal, is we need to have accessibility and equability around our whole world. And it has to be more than just, is there a wheelchair ramp? Is there a button that opens the door? We need to consider, you know, things like alternative seating, um, sensory-friendly events. Um, Do we have room for mobility aids, not just sets of rows and chairs? Things like food allergies. You know, are we putting, is there even allergen-free food? If there is allergen-free food, is it in another room away from everyone else where people are then practically ostracized or put away from the rest of the group? You know, is there a way to help it be natural and flowing and easily labeled? Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of adjustments that we can make to really help it be an equitable and accessible environment. And you had an experience um, about a professor kind of going out of her way. She made a little bit of a comment for certain students to stay after, and this, you know, sparked that that advocacy fire in you, and it got so far that an email went out um, throughout the entire school. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so I was in a class, and this professor, I'm not sure um, what her previous interactions were with individuals with exceptionalities or her familiarity with the law, but it was a general ed classroom. There was a little over 100 students in there, and she had asked all students who received D2A2 services, which is confidential information, to stand up, identify themselves, and discuss with her, you know, in front of other individuals in the classroom what their diagnoses were, um, the accommodations they needed, and then began to almost, I don't want to say debate, but for lack of a better word, really debate with that student as to what accommodations she wanted to have in her classroom, which really violated a lot of things. It violated the confidentiality of that student. It violated the autonomy of that student because their body, their diagnosis, that is part of them. That is their body. That is not something that needs to be shared unless they feel comfortable doing so and also when a student has accommodations that have been approved to have on their list offered by d2a2 that's been approved by doctors and that's really a private thing and it's something that they need to have the environment be equitable it's not to make the class easier than you know somebody else it's just to make it equal so we can all perform on the same level Mm -hmm. and when I heard this, you know, some of, I noticed a lot of my peers felt very embarrassed and they had, were red in the face and they couldn't look up and they were ashamed to look around. And so when she got to me, I was very shocked. I said, I I really don't feel like this is the environment to discuss this. And I, I don't believe that this is really 
what should be occurring. And it, it led to a little bit of a dilemma between the professor and I, and I ended up having to, you know, go to disability services and kind of help that professor learn and explain interacting with students with exceptionalities. And I mean, even something basic like person first language, rather than seeing that student, they were their diagnosis. Like I was the girl with EDS that needed extended test time and, um, a scribe if it was an essay question, you know, things Mm -hmm. that was really not the business of the class unless I chose to disclose it like I did just now, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so that's where that education and that advocacy and that awareness can come into play because especially what I've noticed with a lot of the professors at IEP is they want to be there for the students. They want to be helpful. But I think especially in the world of disabilities, there's not a lot of advocacy and because Right now in society, disability has such a negative connotation, a negative tone, that people who have a diagnosis are embarrassed to talk about it, but then it's a struggle to educate those around us on, you know, interactions using person-first language and being aware of confidentiality and, you know, adapting and modifying and the different accommodations that you need to make the environment Equitable. I think especially with certain accommodation and modifications that students receive in the classroom, whether it's K-12 to or in a college setting, is people think, oh, well, it makes the class easy for them. They don't have to try as hard. When in all reality, it's just to make it a fair playing field. It's to make it so everybody can access the material and show their skill acquisition and application to the best of their ability just as the peer next to them without that disability interfering. Yes, yes, I totally agree. And, you know, I want to thank you and and give you a little bit of praise of everything that you've done and all of the accomplishments and the advocating that you've done to really inform people and also help people become a little bit more accepting and feel a little bit more comfortable in their skin, especially on campus, which can be super scary. And, you know, coming on as a freshman like that one girl is going to be, she now knows that there's a community there and she's welcome and she you know she's able to to feel like a person instead of her diagnose and her disability so I would like to thank you um, for doing that and I know that it means a lot to a lot of people and I always love to hear everything that you're doing and and everything that you're doing to advocate and to make people feel more like a person so thank you that means so much to me. It really does. And I remember when I first got my diagnosis, I was very nervous, very scared. I had even debated, you know, I talked with my parents and my family about if I wanted to even receive services because I was so nervous about, you know, the negative thoughts and associations that society generally has towards individuals with disabilities. Mm-hmm. But then I realized we all need to see that representation. We need at least one person to help stand up and show that we don't need to be ashamed of who we are, of our diagnosis, of what our bodies can and cannot do. And so when I realized that we needed that, I was like, why Why can't I pave that road? So that way students down the line have an easier path to walk. There's a quote that I can't think of, but it's, somebody walked so I could run is along that lines. And I want to start paving that path so we can have individuals with exceptionalities with that diagnosis run and be successful and have a truly equitable and accepting environment around them. That's great. Thank you again. And I would like to give you the last word. Is there one thing or one or two things that you'd like people 
to leave this podcast knowing about EDS or the disability community or rare disease community? Something I'd like to say is to always be compassionate and be kind, whether it is to yourself or is it or it's to somebody else. Kindness mm-hmm. is lending someone else your strength. And sometimes whether it's being frustrated with yourself and your diagnosis, be kind to yourself, be loving. Your body is capable of so many things, even the things that it might struggle with or cannot do. It's still doing so many other things. It's, it's letting you live. It's letting you interact with the world and the people around you. And then for others, you know, be kind, be compassionate. You might not know what's going on in their life. You might not know if they have a diagnosis or not. And to just go around the world with kindness is the ultimate way to really make the world a better place. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. That's great. Thank you so much for being with us today, Millie. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. I know it's a weekend too. Um, So thank you so much. And I know I have learned a lot and I'm sure some of the listeners have learned a lot as well. So thank you. I would love to continue watching your journey. And for some of our viewers who would like to follow you and all of your advocacy and some of the great things that you're doing, do you have a social media account that they can follow? Yes, I do. It's Little Miss Millie on Instagram or Millie Elise on Facebook. I document a lot of um, information on there. And um, there's also some chronic illness blogs that I work with through um, Rare Is, the Ehlers-Danlos Society, and a few others that, um, due to confidentiality reasons, I can give to individuals either via email, but I just don't want to provide them out loud now just so that way I can respect the privacy of others and their journeys but there are social medias out there that I provide and little blogs and stories of those with a rare disease or just a chronic illness or diagnosis in general where they can come together as a community and talk about what they're going through whether it's good or bad or you know the the milestones that they've met building up past that diagnosis so those are always available Great. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you everyone for listening. This was Disability Discussion, and I hope you tune in next time.